Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. Today, I'm joined by one of my standing co-hosts, Mr. Daniel Halverson with Bank of England Mortgage. Thanks for joining me today. Right in early Monday morning. Let's do it. That's right. We got a lot to talk about after Q1. This is our April install of the lending update, and uh, very excited to do that. And for those that are tuning in, we were just recently named top 1.5% in our category at Apple. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and rating us on there and top 10% globally. It's uh, something we're very proud of. And again, thank you guys so much. If you like this podcast and you like what we're saying, please five-star review it, share it, leave a comment on there, it would mean the world to us. And also don't forget to check us out on our socials at What's Your One More with the number one. So Daniel, let's dive right in. Um, lots of updates here in April, lots of updates to talk about. And just kind of kick it off. For those that live in Florida, we have a very special program that's specific to Floridians, if you may, and was called Hometown Heroes. And it looks like uh, that was specifically for about you know 50 to maybe 50 plus style job occupations that were very specific to the terms heroes, the way they define it in the state of Florida. But it uh, looks like Governor DeSantis just signed a new bill or an extension of this that allows us to kind of expand what that hero term means. Yeah, and it was, it's actually part of a, uh, a much bigger housing bill. It was actually the largest investment in housing in the state of Florida's history. Um, it's called the Live Local Act, and, and they um, passed a $711 million bill uh, specifically for housing. And now how that impacts us immediately is uh, the Hometown Heroes Program, which, as you mentioned specifically, um, prior to this has been military, police officers, firefighters, first responders, and then uh, a lot of medical paramedics, teachers, a lot of uh, people in the medical profession, but essentially, uh, and this is, this is pretty much signed, sealed and delivered. uh, But, uh, you know, effective July 1st, they're expanding that to basically any person that is employed by a Florida based business. So a Florida brick and mortar business, Uh, but they're also putting another hundred million dollars of funding into the, the program to allow for more people to take advantage of that. So, uh, so that's kind of the immediate, um, yeah, the, the immediate thing that we will see. And then you know, down the pipeline, essentially what this bill was, it was, you know, uh, money invested in development in um, local governments, mm-hmm. creating partnerships for housing. Um, and it was also um, a $100 million to alleviate inflation-related costs for the Florida housing uh, projects. So, right. uh, some, so some of that will trickle down, you know, over time, we'll see the benefits of that, you know, obviously development, you know, governments, um, housing, housing developments, those things are going to take some time. But in the, the, the immediate future here, this hometown heroes program sounds like it's going to be something that a lot of um, a lot more first-time home buyers in the state of Florida will be able to take advantage of. Yeah. So let's kind of unpack that real quick. So for a lot of people that aren't even familiar with what, you know, Florida e-housing or Florida bond in particular housing assistance, you know, when you hear that term and, and the naiveness in me, when I hear that term prior to 2014, before, you know, we really got involved in these projects as you refer to. And what we mean by that is, you know, e-housing has about, I mean, I could be wrong here. What? 15 variations of these these types of DPA projects that they're working on. And they extend on a per county basis, a statewide basis. But the naiveness in me when I heard that was that, oh, this is for this is for a specific kind of uh, loan and certain only certain very few people are going to qualify for it because there's these caps on how much income you can make. And then there's all these other terms and conditions. And the, the, like again, the naiveness in me said, this is just not for everyone. Turns out once we dove into this, it was for a lot more people than I thought. Now this, this program really expands that pool of potential buyers and helping with the affordability housing uh, here in the state of Florida. Yeah. And I mean, the Florida Housing Finance Corporation is kind of the flagship of, um, you know, investment in affordable housing. Right. And there's these other spinoff programs at a a county level, 
Um, and there's, there's, there are so many of them that pop up over time and the, the qualifications are all very different. And you, you could spend the entire day just trying to understand those products, <laughs> yeah. but the Florida housing products are, are really the ones that are a larger majority of people will actually have access to. Um, and you know, they, they're, like I said, they're doing a number of things here. Uh, the hometown heroes thing, I think that will kind of become, not to use this term again, but will kind of become the flagship program right. for first-time home buyers, which is good because it's going to streamline a lot of that stuff where you don't necessarily have this overwhelming amount of information as a first-time home buyer trying to go find which program's best for me. You know, the the interest rates on that program are subsidized right. at a level where they're competitive with market. You know, the assistance is going up from a maximum per loan from twenty five thousand to thirty five thousand. So you're going to be able to get an assistance amount that is going to help you accomplish the goal of getting into a home with with less, little to no money out of pocket. And we keep using this term affordability. And I think that, I think, again, another naive moment when we hear affordability, you know, that doesn't mean like a certain loan type. Affordability just means helping people get into homes. That's the reality. Correct. You know, there are a lot of statistics, and we've talked about on the show why certain generations, especially new first-time home buyers, they don't have the money saved up to buy the home. They can afford the monthly payment, um, but they don't have the actual savings to make the the down payment. And I think that's what we mean by affordability. It's helping with the down payment money, not necessarily the monthly um, monthly payment, because you still have to qualify like a normal loan. But what the what the state is saying is, hey, we recognize there might be a gap in the down payment. And to your point. Home prices have rose so much now that there's this hundred million built in for inflation in there as well to kind of help out with some of these you know costs to offset that affordability. But what I love about this is you know I've seen enough of this program live in action. We've seen loan amounts almost breach five hundred thousand dollars in this program, and that's where you're getting the twenty five to thirty five thousand dollar down payment because I believe it's what five percent of the of Correct. the actual yep. purchase five percent of the loan amount get. for that program. So by effectively going from twenty five to 35, you've moved this into the 600 plus category range if the person can qualify for it. Correct. Yeah. Pretty absolutely. impressive. Pretty impressive. And kudos to our governor for recognizing that and uh, pumping more money into this. Now, there's also this uh, notion that, yeah, it's great, but these programs are only good until those funds that you just described run out of money. Now, we've heard that before. So let me break it down. Why is it some people can participate, some lenders, some banks, some non-banks, why is it some people participate and some can't participate in this? Well, in terms of who can and can't, you know, I, I believe in the past it has been primarily limited to mortgage companies that have a physical presence in the state of Florida. Correct. And that's been uh, where the difficulty has has been for national lenders or, or you know, Call national, national brokers. Yep. Yeah. So um, typically it's been, you know, brick and mortar, live here, work here, have an office here. Right. It's been the, the requirement for being able to participate in, quite frankly, a lot of lenders don't participate uh, just because, one, these loans, you don't make the same amount of money on these loans as you do maybe other types of loans. But two, also, you have to dedicate almost a specific kind of uh, additional resources to this. You know, it's a different underwrite. It's a different loan process. It's a different uh, process after the fact when that loan gets secured Uh and then, you know, the servicing's transferred over to the master servicer. So there's a little bit more involved in them. Um, but in terms of, you know, in terms of exclusions, it's always been got to have a brick and mortar mortar. location. Yeah. And you just brought up a great point. So, you know, if you're listening to this, these loans are not money makers. They're actually what we refer to as CRA loans in the business, which are community reinvestment act loans. These are not going, if you built a whole business model, just on doing these loans, you're probably not going to have a real good one there. Um, because these are 
made to help the buyer specifically, and they're sponsored by the state. So um, to your point, there's that, and then the whole master servicer on the backside doesn't give you much margin for error if something went wrong. So definitely all good points there, and uh, thanks for bringing that up. And again, you said the start day on that's June 1st or July 1st? July 1. July 1 starts. So, So, uh, sorry, one more thing on that. If if you're a a buyer listening to this, if mm -hmm. you're a real estate agent with a buyer that's looking to utilize a down payment assistance program, you know, probably not something that if you are actively looking and you find a property today that you would like to buy, it may not necessarily be worth waiting and delaying your purchase another 90 days sure. for this program. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you've got somebody in the pipeline, that's not to say, hey, halt, don't do anything until July 1. Consult with your lender and figure out what type of program you're taking advantage of right now, what that program would look like in comparison to the hometown heroes and do an mm-hmm. honest evaluation because it may not be a situation where um, there's a whole lot of of reason to wait via yeah. an additional benefit. And you also, yeah, you may may not want to miss out on the right home now for a marginal 100%. difference in in terms. So I just I like to preface that by saying, yeah, if you've got somebody in the pipeline, don't, you know, don't necessarily put your put your plans off for yeah. another three months. Yeah, and I think it's also important that we know that if you buy, that whatever you're buying with this product home-wise, it's a home you're probably going to need to live in for some time, being three to five years minimum, because, you know, you're going to start that loan a little upside down under equity because of that second mortgage on the backside that we're talking about there. So just keep that in mind. So speaking of switching gears here from like a, that type of loan where you're helping a primary purchase, let's talk about what's going on in the investor market here. I know it's one of the things that you talked about was calling all investors. Um, definitely some, some significant changes for investors in the lending world here. Do you kind of want to go ahead and talk about that? Yeah, I think it's more so just um, maybe being a little bit more aware of it. Um, you know, really since COVID and interest rates came down, investment property transactions have started to make up a more significant portion of the overall amount of transactions. Mm-hmm. It fluctuates anywhere from probably 15 to 25% of the total transactions yeah, that are done on, an, on a national level. And right. some of that also is, not to get too far in the weeds, but you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, th- those agencies basically got rid of um, some some pricing improvement on second home transactions. So we're seeing a lot more transactions that are actually investment properties being classified as investment properties. Correct. But um, you know, we're seeing a lot of, of of transactions there, and those are really not slowing down because um, you know when you look at we talk about inflation, 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 inflation. As you see the power of the dollar in your bank account erode. People want to move their money into real assets, real estate, mm-hmm. gold, silver, whatever you know, whatever you know, commodities, whatever it is that um, that that's you know the asset class that you want to move your money into. People want to move it into something that has a little bit more price stability. Real estate being probably one of, if not the most price stable, right, hard asset you can buy. So we're seeing a lot of investment transactions still happen, and um, you know, investors are putting these deals together and, you know, sometimes they're consulting with a lender beforehand. Sometimes they're putting the deal together and then trying to figure it out on the backside. But, um, but there's a number of different ways that you can go about this here. And, um, we, we put kind of a few of the things in here that we, we see and hear about the most, uh, just and, to, to and I think it, this is real important because, you know, if you're an investor, listen up to this, because how many times do you get called in a daily basis, you know, and, and at your institution where people are trying to structure, if you may, how to get it done? And, you know, with the internet and with all of the knowledge out there, I mean, it's not, 
it's not uncommon to think that the borrowers come in and they think they have this figured out or they do have it figured out. And they're really good at it, by the way. Um, or, or they're coming in trying to figure out, and I'm, I'm not going to use the term manipulate. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But, you know, m- massage the process to where they can figure out how to get it done versus how maybe the agencies and the guidelines want it done. Right. Well, and, you know, sometimes people go out and they buy the property and then um, they want to turn around and immediately do something on the, the financing side. And depending on how they did that, it, maybe it doesn't right. allow them to pull out the amount of money that they want, um, you know, and create some challenges for them. But yeah, the, the big things that we really wanted to hit on here is delayed financing, yeah. uh, which we've talked about in some other settings. But essentially, if you're an investor and you go out and you purchase a property for cash, uh, and maybe it's a competitive situation, uh, or maybe you're buying it that way because it's not necessarily going to be easily financed from a property condition standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially, you can purchase the property cash and then turn around as soon as the next day and do a cash out refinance to pull your money back out up to the amount that you paid for uh, the property that we can document you paid for the property. Um, so not to get too far into the weeds and, and guidelines by any means, but it's something that if you purchase a property cash, you can turn around immediately the next day and start a refinance transaction with our team, and we can help you to pull that equity back out of the property. Yeah, and that's called delayed financing. Called delayed financing. Yeah, and just to kind of offer an example, you buy a home for three hundred thousand in cash. It's documented on a purchase contract. You bought it for three hundred thousand in cash. You can turn around and get that cash, not all of it, but a hefty amount of it, right back from the lender day one. That is correct. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then you know, another hot another hot button we hear a lot is people want to buy investment properties and title them in the name of an LLC. Mm-hmm. Um, and why from, would someone want to do that? Well, Primarily, I think from a liability standpoint, people are yeah. concerned if um, there was somebody to you know fall down on my property or, or something were to happen, my, is my liability now limited to that asset as opposed to being able to maybe go after other assets? And that's, once again, we, w- we won't get in the weeds with that. Um, it's something that we get asked a lot. There's a number of different ways to go about something like that. But we do offer loans in the name of an LLC that do not report to personal credit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these loans will, you can title them in an LLC, but they still show on personal credit which is a sticking point for some people, but we can actually offer them in an LLC without them reporting to personal credit. Um, and then there's non-income qualifying loans. And, uh, you know, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean um, just the debt service coverage mm-hmm. loans that we've talked about in the past, where essentially if you buy an investment property and the rent is equal to or greater than the mortgage payment, there's no income qualifying. There's also other types of um, of loans here where you're not using traditional income qualifying, which... For some investors, you know, if you're a full-time real estate investor, sometimes the income that you reflect on paper via your tax returns maybe isn't conducive to getting traditional, conventional financing. Uh, but just another option to help investors uh, in a little bit more creative of a fashion to be able to get financing. And then the last couple of things here is we have options for properties that are in excess of four units. Those be considered like apartments at that point. Correct. So, yep. so generally anything greater than four units is considered to be commercial financing at that point. We do have options in those scenarios. And we've also got uh, financing options for uh, investors that have more than 10 financed properties. So typically the agencies, well, it's not typically, the agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will cut you off mm-hmm. when you've got 10 financed properties. They don't want any more exposure than you having 10 financed properties. So at that point, when you get to number 11, you have to go find other means to finance. Right. And we have options for that as well. So um, just kind of a brief overview of, hey, here are some things that we see. We're seeing a lot from investors. Right. Probably some investors that, that tune in here. Probably some of our uh, real estate or loan officer audience here are also investors. So 
uh, just kind of like to shed some light on those things so that if somebody wants to have a conversation or has more questions about that, they're, they're aware that that's out there. Yeah, it's perfect timing too, especially after the episode we just got done with Alex from the Market Distillery talking about the real estate investment versus your traditional, you know, equities investment um, and how to do it. And this is just some more information you need to kind of help further extend that platform. So great stuff. Thanks for sharing that with us. And, you know, a caveat there is it's real important because I think there was a time when Fannie and Freddie, those are the agencies when you say that, you know, there was a time when they were a huge resource for investors and people buying second homes. Matter of fact, there was a time when they were the only platform to do that. And then they became very top end heavy, specifically during COVID, when we had all of the transition happening around the country, the work from home, people were buying, working in one place, living in another state. So they were buying second homes. And there was this uh, mixture of what's really a second home because what happened was they would buy a second home and then they would go back to primary home and then they would rent second home out. And Fannie started seeing this pop up on the algorithms, if you may, and a lot of their data that started coming in saying, hey, a lot of these homes that were purchases are actually investments. They've got people living in them. They're either short-term rentals. We can show you advertisements online. The agencies are pretty damn smart. Like they know how to go figure this stuff out. And even down to the point we've seen where they've had people drive by the property just to confirm that you're living in it. And if you don't think they're doing that on the backside, they're absolutely doing that. And one of the telltale giveaways is when the insurance changes from a primary to an investment insurance policy, then agencies are notified and so are the investors. So Fannie Mae kind of backed up and said, listen, we're not going to be a housing portal for investors and investment properties. There's all kinds of things that say that that's not what we're here for. They are there for the primary and to help housing affordability and create the home American dream. And an investor is not necessarily the American dream for Fannie Mae's purposes. I'm not saying that's not an American dream, but for Fannie Mae's definition and Freddie Mac's, it's not. So to your point, they kind of put some handcuffs around, you know, investors and second homes and then kind of penalized them with some lay, oh, some uh, overlays there and rate, you know, bumps, if you may. So all this, uh, all this outlets that you're describing here for these alternative forms are very important because Fannie Mae is saying, we're going to pump the brakes a little bit. Plus, we're going to say no more than 10, which has always been a policy of theirs. But hey, listen, we're also kind of kind of de-incentivize you to even come our way and start looking at other private money alternatives, which is the non-QM market. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think back back to the roots a little bit, they get, they looked at the, you know, their exposure, what, what was compromising sure. their portfolio and said, hey, listen, we've got too many second home transactions, too many investment property transactions here. We're not, uh, we're not created for that. We're created for affordable housing for people to live in and mm-hmm. to own a home. So um, to your point, it's you know, spot on exactly. Yeah. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family and I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. 
So we've seen something in the market as these roller coaster of rates have kind of like, you know, we've gotten teased a little bit with the treasury coming down and rates are looking good. And then we have something happen and they go back up, then they come back down, they go back up. It's like a yo-yo right now. It can't make its mind up. Even though we know the roller coaster is about to start coming down here, it, it almost might even happen this week with the CPI rating that's going to come out. But let's take a look at some things that have been going on in our local market. We have a lot of sellers participating in contributions. And most recently, the contribution that's very popular is in the form of buying down the rate in a permanent discount plan. And the reasoning for that is everyone wins. We've done episode after episode about why that's so important. So we're not going to go down that, that, that path here. However, there are some things that are getting missed on this. And I think you're going to bring some, some levity to this is that there's a lot of uh, information out there where people are just throwing numbers out based on what they think the answer is, but there's actually more room to go in some cases here. And you're going to kind of break it down for us, but each loan, each product has its own seller contribution format. And it's really not that difficult. It's just important to know exactly what it is, especially if you're negotiating a contract, trying to get the best rate on, on the maximization of what the seller is willing to help you out with. Yeah, you know, as I was putting this chart in here, I just thought to myself how funny it would have been in 2020 or 21 to put this chart in something and send it out to a bunch of realtors about paying 9% in closing costs. <laughs> yeah. um, and certainly that's still not, not um, that would be a, a significant outlier. But, right. you know, I think that it's important that um, both agents and lenders alike understand the, the concession limits because it's something that can make or break a, a transaction if something was negotiated incorrectly and maybe now you've got concessions that are greater than um, what you can actually utilize. Mm -hmm. and so uh, that's something that we see a good bit. And then, you know, the other flip side of that is you don't necessarily want to leave money on the table. Um, but, you know, based on on loan type and down payment amount, that will dictate on the, uh, really on the conventional side, loan, you know, loan to occupancy type, whether it's primary, second home or investment property, and then down payment amount will dictate how much money you can receive in concessions from the seller. Right. Um, and then FHA, USDA, and VA are um, pretty standard on it. There's, there's no down payment requirements to get those concessions. Uh, but the interesting thing on, on VA, which I don't think is, is talked about very often, is um, the, the VA guidelines, they're, they're very open-ended, but essentially they say it's 4% in seller concessions. And the way they define that, uh, seller concessions are not payments towards buyer's closing cost. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if uh, the seller were to contribute a monetary amount or a percentage towards closing costs, that's not considered a concession. So a concession would be payment of a funding fee, uh, payment uh, towards escrow right. items, uh, rate buy-downs, either permanent or um, a, a short-term temporary buy-down, uh, or then, um, you know, basically like a true gift or, or, or payment of the, the borrower's debts in some capacity. But I just think it's an interesting caveat there that, you know, keep in mind if you're negotiating a VA contract, especially this maybe would be more applicable on new construction where you've got, we've seen some pretty hefty incentives. Seen some aggressive ones, so for keep sure. Keep in mind, it's not, you know, that 4% does not include payment of closing costs. So you actually have a lot more room to go with with that. And, and, and the reality is most of these concession limits are really not going to be something you're going to see on, on resales. There, there are outlier transactions where sure. we see resales with 3 4 5% concessions. Rare. Um, but, you know, list-to-sell price is still about 98%. Probably right. actually, we'll, we'd have to rerun the numbers. Probably, it's actually probably gotten a little bit higher. It's probably improved. Agreed. Um, but, you know, if the average is 98, then obviously you're not getting 3 to 6% concessions. Right. But, but more so on the builder side, we are still seeing some situations where you've got some pretty hefty incentives there being thrown out there. And I think it's important as a real estate agent, 
you know, you get that information a lot of times before the lender does. So let's make sure that we are negotiating an amount that they mm-hmm. actually are going to be able to utilize. Yeah. And you got to think about it. The reason he would say that, you know, it's our audience, we're seeing that more on the builder side than we are on the resale side is the builders are running a business. The average seller, you and I, we're just trying to get this transaction sold, right? And make some profit and, and, and still get it, you know, sell it for what we feel is a reasonable price. The builders running a business, so the last thing they want to do is drop their prices. It's yep. going to impact future sales or current businesses that's under contract. You got all these buyers under contract, and if they find out that Charlie's getting the same lot, Charlie's getting the same design as you're getting, but he's getting it thirty thousand dollars cheaper, they're going to go knock on that side agent store and be like, "Hey, what the heck? Why am I paying thirty grand more even though I signed the contract three months ago?" So builders have to take all that in consideration. They would much rather give you a concession of thirty thousand than drop that price because, and no one's going to complain about. About that it's just you know it's one of those things where it's like oh oh well this is a, a new monthly special they're running i just i signed a contract there's so many ways to discount that 30 grand if you're just giving it in concessions versus dropping a price point yeah well you're you're right builders are much more reluctant to drop the price because you know if it's a resale and the price is dropped obviously that could impact the market but mm. when you talk about builders i mean they are setting their own comps it's the same floor plan the same square footage Correct. the same year built and it's, you know, and now you want to sell them at different prices. So um, they're going to hold the line on prices, which is why you see some of those concessions right. much larger than, you know, maybe the 2 or 3% sometimes uh, that you might get on an, an existing home sale. Right, and they're building a business. So again, to your point, if the home that I put under contract today has to support the home, I'm trying to get under contract six months from now because of the comps and the things you just mentioned there. Very, very important. But on the resale, you know, it's still great to know that these, uh, these opportunities are still there to really kind of push down and get that permanent rate. Can't stress that enough that you use all those details you just shared. By the way, we're going to have that chart in our show notes and also in our YouTube uh, notes as well, where you can take a look at those because it's not really extensive. It's just a lot to cover here on, on a podcast. Thinking that if you're listening to this while you're driving, you could write this down or something. It'd be very hard to kind of follow that. So we'll put that in the we'll put that in the notes for you here. But you know, obviously March for us was a big win in the front of rates kind of moving the direction we've been talking about. Yep. And you know, I think it's funny because you you said when banks fail, do you win or do rates drop? And the, and the reality is, uh, all signs are pointing towards that might be the case, as well as some other things that are happening. But um, I'll kind of let you lead with yes, rates dropped. Talk about how much they did drop in the month of March. Starting you know, March one, we were basically six and three quarters, and Ouch. by the end of the month, we were closer to six and three eighths. Okay. So you basically had about a forty basis point move in rates. Uh, and we've talked about CPI, 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 inflation, inflation, inflation. Well, inflation was basically right in line with expectations um, in the month of March, mm-hmm. um, or excuse me, the month of. February. Uh, February, excuse me. Sure. So um, it was it was right in line. Now, year-over-year year inflation went down um, from 6.4 to 6%, uh, which, you know, just, just kind of a, a high-level thing here. You know, four, five, six months ago, inflation was over 9%, down to 6%. Still far too too hot. We don't want to be running 6% mm-hmm. inflation, but I, I do think it's worth mentioning over the course of the last six months, they've decreased it by a third from from what it was. So, um, so for all of the talk of rate hikes and inflation, it is certainly going the right direction. But that being said, March's reduction in interest rates really had nothing to do with inflation. Correct. It all had to do with the banking system. You know, we saw the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We spent a lot of time talking about that. Saw a couple other banks follow suit, and then you started to see some some banks overseas follow suit as well. Mm-hmm. And that concern, you know, in the banking system um, was a a good thing for mortgage rates. You know, p- investors generally 
when they see signs of, of significant chaos in the market, they're going to turn towards something that historically has been safer, bonds, right. you know, in 2022, not the case, <laughs> but historically going to move to something that's safer and, and mortgage rates were the beneficiary of that. Um, I would also venture to say that, you know, there's a lot of uh, yield curve control that's taking place right now. And, and what I mean by that for our audience is that, you know, when you're short-term bonds and your short-term bills are at a greater payout than your long-term, that's a reversal of what it should look like. You know, the old economic adage, the shorter the risk, the, sh the less the return, the greater the risk, the greater the return, right? We all know that that's, that's a principle. But when that principle has been turned upside down and you're seeing greater returns in the short run, that means the market believes that there's more risk in the short run. Yep. And so that's kind of holds true. We've seen that kind of, you know, I mean, what better risk do you have than certain banks that are being collapsed and the FDIC and the Federal Reserve have to step in and the U.S. Treasury bail them out, right? That's what that was. And so there was risk there and it was shown and, and it shows up as just as we were told. Now, what you're seeing is the control of the curve come in there to get that risk out of there. And what I mean by that is they want to see a greater return on the 10-year note than you would on a two-year. And so that, that that's, that's a popular term that's measured the 210 treasury curve. It's been inverted for quite some time. We know that inversion leads to all signs of a recession 12 to 18 months later. Um, and we've been in that inversion for quite some period. We've got to get out of that. And I think that's what you're seeing with this control coming in, this yield control curve coming in by the Federal Reserve to do that. And that that's just the winner of that's mortgage interest rates. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that this yeah, this whole thing kind of created a, a an opportunity um, to maybe try to, to correct the yield curve a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that was the intention, but essentially what's happened here, um, maybe you've touched on this, maybe you haven't, you know, in the aftermath of Silicon Valley Bank, we spent some time talking about what happened uh, and, and we spent some time, you know, speculating what could happen, but essentially what has happened, the Federal Reserve, FDIC, basically they came out and said, hey, we will make uh, everyone whole that has lost money from banking failures. So, Essentially, what they did is they created what's called the Bank Term Funding Program. Mm -hmm. It's a lending facility that the Federal Reserve uh, has opened, and it will allow, allow banks to borrow money from the Federal Reserve, basically taking the uh, qualifying assets, so treasury bonds, treasury bills, other qualifying assets. Mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities. The Federal Reserve will pay you um, basically par value on those. Yeah, face value for these. You know discounting the fact that they have lost value because interest rates have gone up by so mm -hmm. much. So they're paying you based on what would be par value, even though if you went to sell them today, you wouldn't get par value no, in the open market. But what they've essentially what they've done um, since that lending facility was created, this was a couple of weeks ago that I looked at this, but they've increased their balance sheet by $350 billion. Yeah. And they're not talking about that. And they even... <laughs> and, you know, they even covered it up. I mean, they came out in, in April and said, hey, we're going to raise interest rates. Right. Uh, or the last Fed meeting, rather. They, they came out and said, we're going to raise the federal funds rate by a quarter percent. All the meanwhile, on the backside, $350 billion over the course of a few weeks is a lot. That's a lot of buying of, of, of assets. And or, Daniel, what are they adding to the system? More money. More money, which is the definition of? More inflation. More inflation. Yep. So you're actually counterproducting all of the stuff that you've been fighting, right? So this is where the term kicking the can down the road has come from, from so many different people, because that's, to your point, when they opened up the vault, they went from literally, we just, we went over the $9 trillion threshold 
on the debt of the Federal Reserve. And I think that that's extremely relevant because, you know, you're adding more money to a system that was already highly inflated, that's battling symptoms of inflation, and we're trying to fix it. And we just added another, to your point, 350. There was two days in a row where they did $90 billion. Yep. And how long ago was it Silicon Bank collapsed? What, two weeks ago? Two and a half weeks March, ago? March, what? Yeah. Second week? Second week of March. Okay, so maybe it was a month ago. It doesn't even feel like a month ago. But, yeah. I mean, the reality is it wasn't that long ago for $350 billion. Part of that's these lending updates are fashionably late. So well, the reality is, hey, you know what? <laughs> hey, the reality is it's a great point. And, you know, I just, this was an interesting stat to me. I want to put this in perspective for the audience. You know, we say these words like billions and trillions, and they just roll right off the tongue. I had to Google this because I, I heard this stat years ago and just I needed for it to set in. And I was trying to explain to someone, hey, do you know how much a trillion dollars is? And they're like, yeah, you know, they tell you exactly what it is. And I'm like, let me put it in perspective because this really hits home. How many years would it take you to spend a million dollars a day, $1 million a day to get to a trillion? Long time. I believe 2,000. 720 years. Well, if you got a hundred million to spend a day, you can, or a million to spend a day, you could probably invest well, that, in some. That was, I mean, that, some, let that set in for a minute. That is, and by the way, we got, we're talking about nine times that with the Federal yes. Reserve's budget, or excuse me, uh, the debt sheet. And then also, you know, the national debt's $40 trillion. It's just shy of being up near 40 trillion, you know, we're in that. Eh, that's absurd when you think about those numbers. I was just thinking about how much you would have to invest in in, in health, health and wellness, and science to, to live to, <laughs> to, to live, live that, that long. long to spend it. But so, you know, you, you, one thing I want to mention is you, you, know, you talk about we're talking about the the Fed increasing the balance sheet by three hundred fifty right. billion dollars. Where where do we see that? Okay, well, where was the ten year when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed? Roundabout. No, it was it was cresting four. Right, it was right about four percent. As we sit today, three point three eight three is where it stands this morning. So, is all of that attributed to that? Probably not, but I think a lot of it is, you know, because what are these banks coming to the Fed with qualifying assets, asking them to pay them par value sure. on treasuries. treasuries? Treasuries. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And what's the best way to slow down people from buying the par, buy back? Let's get it back to, let's get it back to value, right? right. So if, if the Federal Reserve can have that yield control and get those unhealthy assets healthy again, that's less people coming to the system for them to do the bar, basically the buyback at par. So it saves them a little bit of money as well. Yeah. And then I think just to kind of bring this home here. So where, where does this leave us? You know, we've talked about lower rates, lower rates, lower rates. We still think lower rates are coming. We've talked about shelter costs. Uh, the year over year increase in apartment rental listings peaked at about 18% in 2021. It sits at about two and a half percent year over year today, meaning mm -hmm. that if I listed a home or an apartment for rent one year ago versus today, the increase is about two and a half percent, which is very modest. We haven't really seen that filter through the system yet. We still anticipate inflation is going to come down. However, now we've got a potential caveat here where maybe that maybe it's accelerated now because the feds are back to doing some behind closed doors quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. So maybe rates come down a little bit faster, but once again, as you were seeing with what we have been going through, the quantitative easing leads to a inflation problem or a potential inflation problem in the future. So I think that where that could leave us. And, you know, unfortunately, there's just so many um, moving parts and so many changes. But where I think that this could lead us is interest rates come down faster and go back up faster. Correct. So I think that if you're yeah. listening to this thinking, well, why do I care about any of this? Um, I think that, that, you know, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see rates come down faster. Maybe they come down uh, to a number that's maybe a little bit lower than we than we thought, but then very short-lived. I think you're going to start to see some sticky inflation right. and 
you know, realistically in six months, we're still going to be dealing with more inflation because they're pumping more money into the system. Although they don't want to tell you that they're tightening, uh, they're, they're tightening to your face and, and they're handing out money behind your back. Yeah, so absolutely. We know, we know the federal reserve has two objectives right here, get inflation down to 2% and then get unemployment up to 5%. Well, up to not actually at, but up to that's their, that's their threshold. If you may, that's their, 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 their definition of what they're willing to have happen. So a couple things last week, we had mixed bag of job reports come out. ADP report came out conflicted with the BLS report, which are the two job reports. So we kind of saw the market do the yo-yo, but we also saw inflation come back down. So, but in a very, very flat format, it came back down. So the reality is we're still not seeing a lot of tailwind from the decisions that are being made, but we've got this easing going on in the background. And to your point, that's going to add that quick backup because we're, we're creating more symptoms for these inflation that's happening in the background here. And, and it's hard to battle something when you keep putting more of it back in there. And so we had consumer spending come out last week. Um, we're going to break that down here later on this week, but you're starting to see more and more credit card debt build. You're starting to see more and more spending happening. All of these are signs pointing towards- wage growth slowing. Wage growth slowing, employers laying off. All this are signs of a recession happening right in front of that. And one of the ways to protect against that is going to be how do you invest, right? And one of the ways to hedge against all of these things that we're discussing is potentially putting your money in real estate for a vast different amount of reasons that we've talked about over and over again on this show. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing that up on here because I think that's relatively important. And Yeah, I think that all signs are really pointing to recession, everything. All of the data is starting to mirror that with the exception of the BLS jobs report. I, you know, for, for whatever reason, that particular piece of data continues to not reflect <laughs> what everything else around it is. Um, but so it's, it's it, again, we laugh because the manipulation of numbers, I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I'm saying that every time all signs are pointing towards this thing, you have a, a government index that comes out and you're like, now we're just going to move the goalpost again and, and, and make it look completely different, you know, and the seasonal adjustments and all that stuff that takes place kind of represent that's what's happening. On yeah. There. It's just, it's still strange to me that the jobs report is not a tally of how many jobs were, were taken in that particular month. Right. Uh, there's, all, there's, there's all these <laughs> seasonal adjustments, but it, it's not, it has nothing to do with how many jobs actually were created. Right. Um, and that's is, why the only thing we have that really kind of gives us an indicator of what's happening is the opposite of that. How many people are being laid off and going to the unemployment right. line every yep. Thursday under the initial jobs loss claims that we're getting information of how many people are filing for unemployment. And matter of fact, this Thursday, Thursday just happened, the past Thursday, um, I believe that was the sixth, that was the highest... That was the highest rate we've seen post-COVID in one week. Now, obviously, COVID numbers are out of control, but post-COVID, that was the highest number we had seen, which means there's a lot of people laid off yep. higher than expectations that had gone to the, the, the unemployment line to file for unemployment. And again, we've talked about why that doesn't include those that are unemployed not getting uh, unemployment. But these are this is the best, that's the most real-time way we can see what's happening. And to your point, those numbers conflict with the BLS numbers that came out. Yeah, well, initial claims up. Continuing claims up, yep. job openings down. Right. So we're starting to see some of the things we've been talking about. Not that we wish any bad will on the economy oh, for no. anybody. These are just impacts of tightening and raising rates and shutting down basically short-term borrowing at a rapid rate that creates more jobs, unfortunately. That's exactly what it does. And so when employers see that and they start shrinking due to profitability shrinking, they have to reduce their employment force. And that's what you're seeing happening there. Yep. It's a direct result of that. However, in the meantime, what's happening is – there's a question when the Federal Reserve meets here in a couple of weeks, start of May, 
do they pause? Do they not do anymore? You know, you had the fair chairman in Cleveland come out and say, we need to keep raising these rates, but he's the only person that has said that of that entire group. So it does look like, you know, as closer we get, we'll find out. I think a lot of it has to do with the indexes that are going to come out this week and next week when we see these new inflationary readings come out. Granted, they're going to be for the month of March when you get them in April. But if those don't show any signs of getting better, you might get that quarter again. But if we see it just even get a little bit better, everyone already is bracing for a zero, you know, a zero hike here. I would say that if if the Feds raise interest rates in May, despite the fact that they're all they've gone back to easing at a much higher scale than they are tightening, I would think that would probably be the the most out of touch reaction that we have seen <laughs> ever. Right. Um I just, I, you know, I guess anything could happen. They just did it. But I yeah. just don't foresee a scenario where they could possibly justify raising interest rates while they're buying assets. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and getting back to that, April may be your windfall for the rates that you've been looking for. April and May may be our windfall where we kind of get dip into that fives for the stay there for a little bit. But this could be an opportunity. Uh, regardless of that, we know the following things. As inflation gets higher, which we're talking about why we think it's going to, real estate wins. As recessions happen, real estate wins. There are a lot of windfalls here to help that is going to kind of shine some light on this doom and gloom scenario. So if you have any doubt in that, I would definitely take that into consideration. This is all great information you brought to the table today. Tons of opportunities, tons of stuff on investor guidelines in here. Great information on new programs coming to the state of Florida or expanding to the state of Florida in here. All great stuff. Daniel, thanks for being on the show this morning. It's always great having you on here. You always bring so much valuable information. If someone wants to hear more about Daniel Halverson and Bank of England, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? Uh, visit us on our website at bobjacks.com or you can give us a call at 904-992-1000. All right, excellent. Thanks for being on the show this morning. Appreciate it as always. You got it, man. Thanks for having me. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah.